Guardian Unlimited. Hello and welcome to the Labour Party conference in Manchester. I'm Michael White and with me this morning are Harriet Harman, the Justice Minister, also MP for Campbellwell and Peckham, and the woman who wants to replace John Prescott as Deputy Leader of the Labour Party when Tony Blair goes. Also here and not wanting to be Deputy Leader is Will Woodward, the Guardian's Chief Political Correspondent. Harriet, uh, you would like to see Gordon Brown as the next Prime Minister, you've made that pretty clear, but you've also been close in your time to the Blair camp, and before that to the Neil Kinnock camp, I seem to remember. Some people in the audience yesterday were choking back tears when Mr Blair made his farewell speech. How did you feel about it on a scale of emotion? Well, you know, I'm, I'm not a kind of weepy person and I'm often, you know, accused of not being a sufficiently weepy enough person, but I'm afraid even when they held up those banners as they did, uh, you know, early before Tony Blair had even got onto the stage, they held up banners saying, Tony, we love you and Tony, thank you, I'm afraid. And don't go, some of them Yes, but the you know so I felt a bit very tearful even just as they held up the banners. Yeah, it was a a huge historic occasion. But you didn't feel as some people were supposed to have felt. You know what have we done? You know this man is a remarkably successful leader. He can do these set piece occasions in a way that almost nobody except Bill Clinton later today can do. Um, it's over, is it? You're quite clear in your mind that it's it's over now. I think the overwhelming emotion in the hall was a feeling of pride and kind of tearful pride uh, in what Tony Blair had done, but a recognition that it's, it's time to move on now. You didn't feel, as I swept along with it, you listening to his description of Britain, what it was like in 1997 under that bad man John Major and what it's now after nine years of Labour government, you thought, well, yes, a lot of things have been done, but steady on, you know, that he had created a sort of, I think one of the papers unkindly called it a sort of um, imaginary land of his own, that, uh, that he didn't go too far there. And your constituents, with all the difficulties in Peckham, inner London, inner city seat, was say, hey, hang on, not that good. No, not at all. And I've been a Member of Parliament for many years under the Tories, and I used to have every week in my surgeries in Peckham Town Hall people coming in <coughs> complaining about the health service. You know, people saying, I'm in agony, I need a hip replacement, I can't go upstairs in my house, so I have to pee in a bucket and sleep on the sofa, I feel humiliated. I know I shouldn't do this, but please can you write to the hospital asking for me to be moved up the waiting list. I don't see that anymore. I don't have to knock <coughs> on doors and see a woman open the door really glum. I've got two lads indoors. One's 19, one's 21. There's nothing for them. You know, no training, no job. I mean, I can remember that, Michael. That was the situation in my constituency. So I don't need to be one of these, you know, I mean, I don't know who you're referring to who wrote about this in the newspapers, but I know the reality that the Labour government has been good for my constituents and it's been good for many of the great cities of this country and the towns and the countryside. So I, I really believe in our record that Tony was articulating and I see it with my own eyes. Will Woodward, do you recognise that picture in those terms? Oh yeah, I do. I think uh, I think my, the public at large, um, probably if they were watching the speech last night, uh, yesterday, and who knows how many of them actually saw it to any um, great degree, I think they would roughly recognise the picture he painted and roughly recognise that things have improved. On the Brown-Blair question, Blair saying explicitly yesterday, you know, I want you to win, it's up to you now, you can take my advice or not, uh, we want a fourth term. Uh, is this a truce between the Brownite and Blairite factions, all the tension, all the silly things that get said, 
Uh, is this going to hold, and are we going to get, after this speech yesterday, the orderly transition at some point in the next few months? Well, ask me again at lunchtime, I suppose. I mean, there are still obvious tensions, endemic tensions in this relationship, and we've got several um, tension points in the next few months which will cause problems. Parliament coming back, I think that's going to be a big deal. Uh, David Cameron, uh, Prime Minister's questions, is going to make hay with some of the stuff that came out of the speech yesterday. I mean, then Tony uses... Um, the very words that Cameron taunted him with, you, you're the future now. Um, he said that to his party, not yes, to Mr Cameron. Um, but no. Cameron has been, said to Blair um, when he became mm. leader, you were are, you are the future once. Yes, this, is gonna, this is going to be a real problem. You, things are going to happen. Things are, Issues are going to come up. We've got a Queen's speech to get through. I think that there could be problems there. Does it look too thin? Does it look too full? Um, a, a tricky path for the Prime Minister to tread. Okay. And then I, I'd say that the um, Polly Ptolemy makes a good point in the paper today, in the Guardian today, that um, can we really take another farewell speech from Blair at the Spring Conference in February? I'm not sure we can. Oh, how unkind. Harriet, you've already declared you're going to run for the deputy leadership. Uh, you believe and, and your allies in all sorts of places. Neil Kinnock among them the other evening in my hearing said there ought to be a woman in the top team after the Blair-Brown-Prescott bloke triangle. Uh, uh, but uh, the deputy leadership, it, it varies as to who holds it, what sort of job they make of it. Famous remark of a Vice President of the United States said it wasn't worth a warm bucket of spit. Uh, John Prescott's made it worth more than that. What, what would you do with it? Well, uh, you know, it is of course important. It's one of the top two of the leadership team of the Labour Party. And I, you know, I think it is important that we have a, a, a man and woman team because the, the Labour Party believes in equality and we've done a great deal a huge amount to make women represented in Parliament so that actually the government could deliver for women. And again, sorry to sound as if I've got very long historical perspective on all these things, but when I was first in the House of Commons there was 97% men and only 3% women and it affected the political agenda. Yep. It meant you couldn't discuss domestic violence. People thought you had a problem if you discussed domestic violence. You couldn't discuss childcare. That's not politics. And all of these issues because we've got a big number, 97 Labour women MPs, they're not just there for the sake of it or tokenism. They have, by their involvement in our parliament, changed the political agenda. So actually having a woman deputy leader is not a tokenistic point. It's about saying we're a party which is looking outwards to women as well as men in this country and we believe in representation. And so, you know, I do think that that's a good point. But can I just pick up Will on his point about Blairites and Brownites? Because I think that, you know, Gordon acknowledged that there have been differences which he regrets with Tony. But I don't agree with what Peter Mandelson said on the Today programme yesterday morning, where he said, you know, there are these two tribes, we must unite them. I don't agree with that. If you actually look around conference, look at the constituency delegates, look at the members of parliament who are here, look at the trade union delegates who are here, they don't define themselves as Blairites or Brownites. They de define themselves as being in the Labour tribe. And there has been a certain amount of kind of infighting amongst a narrow group of people at the top. And no doubt we will be held hostage to their preparedness to talk to the paper about it. But the truth, the newspapers, but the truth is, it is shallow and narrow, and for the most part, the, port the party is hugely united and wanting to go forward. So, you know, I know that it's difficult not to be sidetracked 
by comments that people make, but we are not two tribes. And I mean, I'm variously described as a Blairite and a Brownite. You're Usually, a bit of an hermaphrodite in this <laughs> matter. You've been put in both <laughs> columns in your time, no, but you're, you're no. more Brown. I would agree with you, but I would say, and you know it, that the, that's true of the delegates at large, and they get cross with the newspapers the way they report things, and that's fair enough too. But there are courts, that's maybe a better way to put it, there are two courts surrounding these two powerful figures. It's very common in politics, and you know they can be as petty as uh, anything you read in the newspapers about it. So it, it's there. Oh no, I'm not saying okay. I'm not saying okay. that it's illegitimate for you to be reporting it. I'm just saying that when you report it, I want to be saying to you, be aware that it's a narrow, small yeah. group of people and that actually I'm like most other people in most other Labour MPs, most other people who don't want to have to choose between Blair or Brown, want to admire and support the Prime Minister, want to admire and support the Chancellor. Okay. Okay, right. You said a minute ago about uh, the South and about constituents and the impact upon Peckham and Camberwell. Tony Blair in his speech yesterday spoke of uh, uh, an beyond an electoral necessity of winning what we sometimes call Middle Britain seats. Uh, now, there are Labour MPs who say that the concentration on, on key marginals has sort of excluded the agenda of the core uh, 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 a Labour vote. John Cruddus, the MP for Dagenham, was very articulate on this point and he says it allows people like the BNP to get in and address issues which Blairism has failed to address. Now how do you respond to that? Well I don't, I think that that's a false choice. I, I see what the Labour government has delivered in my constituency in terms of you know whole housing estates with new doors and windows, more housing being built and as I said you know cuts in hospital waiting lists. My constituents can't afford to go to private hospitals. You know rebuilt schools, they don't see Well private children. hospitals funded by the NHS they can afford to go to, that's the point isn't it? No it's, n no, it's not. But let me just, I'll get back to that point in a minute. Let's just finish this point about Middle England is that They've seen the hospital waiting is for more doctors and nurses. They've seen the schools rebuilt. What I'm saying is that my constituency is the sort of constituency which needs a Labour government because it's the first to have problems. If there's a downturn in the economy, there are people more on the margins of the labour market, less protected, needing public services. And I'm very proud of what the Labour government's done. But I don't go out to places like Crawley and urge them to vote Labour, and Basildon and urge them to vote Labour, and Hastings and Dover and say, vote Labour, because I want you to be Labour so we can have a Labour government to help my constituents. My argument to people in those constituencies as well is that Labour is good for Britain, it's good for Basildon, it's good for Crawley, and I don't think there's a false, that you have to choose between being true to your principles and winning those seats which, where the first instinct of people in those seats is not to vote Labour, because Labour has been good with a strong economy and social justice. It's good in all of those areas. And I think that's something that Tony was underlining and I really strongly agree with. Will, do you sense in uh, uh, marginals, you've just heard Harriet Harman's powerful uh, uh, argument for saying you can do it on a sort of all Britain ticket. Uh, is there a peeling away uh, to either one towards the Liberal Democrats or back to the Cameroon Tories among those sort of key marginals? They sometimes say 800,000 voters in 100 key seats decides elections. Yeah, I think we saw in the local elections um, the sort of re-emergence, I mean not completely, but nonetheless the re-emergence of that old line between the wash and the, um, 
and uh, the, the um, and the East East Anglia, which um, split Labour and Tory in the eighties, and you've, you you're finding again, certainly on on councils, that outside London, Labour seem to be struggling in the south, and um, uh, but uh, they're still incredibly dominant in the north. The Tories, for all their efforts, couldn't make any progress in Manchester, Liverpool, and Newcastle. Um, I, I think there there is. Um, Particularly if we have Gordon Brown as Prime Minister, there are going to be certain types of marginals which I think are going to be necessarily, instinctively harder for Labour to win. Harriet Harman, um, you're of course not just the woman candidate for deputy, you're the southern candidate. We, perhaps if we were in America, we'd be talking about your regional credentials as uh, to balance a, a, a leader of the party from the north. But foreign policy, one of the aspects of your campaign as it's begun to emerge, which you've made uh, salient, is this idea that somehow foreign policy shouldn't really be the preserve of elites as it historically has been, and that somehow we ought to open up the process and debate and get people more involved. I thought jolly good when I listened to it, but as newspaper men we know that uh, most uh, readers and viewers are much less interested in foreign policy they are, than they are in domestic policy, and the headlines reflect that. How are you going to get a wider debate? Well, this is not about us saying come along, be interested in foreign policy, join us and discuss our policy. This is, this is me responding to how I see people are more interested than they used to be in foreign policy. I mean, the conventional wisdom used to be that people didn't know about abroad and they didn't care about abroad. And anyway, even if they did know or care about it, you couldn't discuss it with them because it was all national security or high-level <coughs> negotiations and you couldn't show your hand. So it was an absolute, you know, it was, the foreign policy belonged to the government. It didn't belong to the people, I and mean, it was done in their name. And I think that's changed. I think there's a kind of secular trend for people wanting to have a say in everything now, in a way that they didn't used to in the past. So I think there's the general thing. But I think people go abroad now much more. They know about abroad because of television from all around the world, and they care about it. So actually, we can either have people protesting about a foreign policy which they feel they haven't had a say in the big issues about what our relationship should be with America, what should be our relationship with Europe, how much we should do on our own, and how much we should try and do working with other countries where you can do more but you have to compromise. These big strategic issues, I think that we should say they are no longer the preserve of ambassadors and uh, you know a small group of ministers, that actually people want to have a say. And if people don't want to have a say, those people who don't want to involve themselves in foreign policy and who want to involve themselves in nothing or just talk about health or education, that's fine. It's not about dragging people in. Mm. It's about saying, I think that they're knocking at the door and we should involve them. And our policy, like every policy, is better when the leadership listens. Well, Woodward interest in foreign policy, salience of foreign policy, is really all about Iraq and about George Bush, isn't it? Uh, well, it's certainly about Iraq, it's also about the Lebanon. I think one of the causes of the September, the September hassles of Tony Blair, more than hassles, was um, the Lebanon, and I think for some people that was uh, you know, a, a moment, a moment they decided to sort of come out of the woodwork. Because Tony Blair didn't call for a ceasefire immediately, he says it would have been pointless, gesture politics, the kind of thing he despises, until you've got both sides uh, with a UN backed ceasefire and reinforce my troops. That's roughly the Blair line. That it? It, um, but it was that, very unpopular that, because a, of television, as Harriet said. That's, a, that's an argument. Yes, it was, a, it's a, it was a war which, unlike the Iraq war, people actually saw 
immediately happening, immediately um, laid out before them. We journalists were able to go and interview the victims straight away in a way they weren't able to do with the Iraq mm. War. But I think it, for some in the Labour Party, and um, I think it sort of underlined a sense that that um, Blair would always back Bush in whatever the circumstances, and they felt deeply uncomfortable about that. And I think um, this, the way um, this, these last few weeks have played out, I don't think would have happened in the same way, of course, without um, without that. Uh, Harriet Harman, we're, Will Woodward said a moment ago we're looking forward to a few more tensions this morning. I assume he was talking about the speeches by John Reid and uh, Alan Johnson, both potential leadership contenders. Uh, you were? Just no, say no, yes. No, uh, no, I was merely saying that you, the, the, the truth seems to be holding now, but you, ne you never know, something can happen yeah, in the next but, few hours. But we are, we are going to hear from... We are going to hear no, well, we're hearing from John tomorrow from, and right. um, uh, Alan Johnson this afternoon. Clear that up, thank you. Um, could you serve happily under either of those if, against the odds, they suddenly emerged as uh, serious contenders and actually beat Gordon Brown on the grounds that one or other of them was more electable against David Cameron? I've served under Michael Foote. I've served under um, Neil Kinnock, I've served under John Smith, I've served under Tony Blair. The answer is yes, isn't it? And I will serve under whoever is next leader of the Labour Party because it's a great privilege to be able to hold any office in government and I would be proud to do that. But I'm supporting Gordon Brown because I think he's the best candidate and would be a great Prime Minister. Do you feel that all this talk which people like Will and I generate about a Blairite candidate is going to come to anything? What's your hunch? Well, you know, I, I, I have no idea, but I, I don't agree hunch? with the talk. I, I really, honestly, I just haven't got a hunch that's worth having at this time. My hunch is no, but anyway, right. go on. But I think that actually that what we're into is a contest. It's not Gordon's by right and are people going to challenge him. It's nobody's by right. People are going to put themselves forward if they are going to, and whoever is the strongest candidate will win it. I think Gordon, I mean, my, my view is, you know, quite straightforwardly, Gordon is by way the strongest candidate because of his extraordinary record as Chancellor. You see, if you're out and about in the country, that really is really important for people, that they know what he's done in his office for the last 10 years. I know from the 10 years before that of working with him, the measure of the man, and I can see what he would do as Prime Minister beyond what he's done as Chancellor. But I think that that makes him head and shoulders above others. Um, you know, but I'm Labour, as I say, I'm mm. Labour, um, you know, rather than factional. Blair said a striking mm. thing. He said, the public will forgive us sometimes for a wrong decision, but they don't forgive you for not deciding. Gordon, up to that demanding task, capable of making big decisions decisively? Well, you know, Michael, because... But we don't know, because we're around. not in government. No, we're, no. we're not around. No, no, we're, no. We, don't, we never see that side okay. of it. Okay, no, I'm saying you do know, Michael, because you've seen, as, as you were around in the 80s, the really tough decisions that Gordon Brown took. I mean, when he first became Shadow Chancellor, the conventional wisdom was that you showed you were the Labour Party by, by, put, by offering to put up taxes as much as you possibly could, the more the better, and spent as much money in the public sector as you could, even if it was on unemployment benefit, and even if plenty of it wasted. That was an article of faith on the left. And it was an incredibly tough decision that Gordon Brown took with Tony Blair, where he said, we will tax fairly and spend wisely. He has always taken tough decisions, and no doubt he will do again. And he'll be able to heal up the mistrust which has 
gathered very considerably around the government, partly over what we used to call spin, but also over, of course, Iraq. Yes, you know, he needs to rebuild public trust. He re needs to win back the members we've lost since 97, but that's a task for us all. Mm. Well, Woodward, uh, Bill Clinton's coming on the platform today. Uh, contrast between the Brown and the Blair styles, but uh, uh, nobody uh, expects Bill Clinton to do other than to outshine them both. Is this a good morale-boosting thing for Labour Conference. We usually get a speaker. Sometimes it's Clinton and Mandela, sometimes less distinguished speakers, has to be admitted. Uh, or is this part of the sort of showbizization of uh, party conferences? Does it help, or is it just telly? It's great telly. I also think um, it's, uh, there, can be, there can be a sort of anticlimactic sense after the leader's speech, and that isn't the case today. There's something, there's something else really stellar to look forward to. I, I, I think it's great that he's coming. I think it's great that he's coming today. And, uh, you know, people can struggle into tomorrow. Uh, John Prescott um, rallying the troops at the end. That's, a, that's okay. But you, it, it, we've got the sort of the great Western political megastar coming today, and I think the hall will be packed, and it's a great moment. I can't resist asking Harriet Harman. Clinton divides feminists in America, famously so. Will you be in the hall or will you be saying, tut tut, I'll stay away from that man? I shall be in the hall and I shall be cheering, but I will be sharing the mixed feelings that my feminist friends in the Democrats in the States oh, yeah. felt, where they would be, you know, ringing me up and wailing down the phone, what do we do about this? And what did your friends do? They supported do? him. They supported him. And they supported him and they're glad they did. Harriet Harman, thank you very much, and thank you too to Will Woodward. We'll be back tomorrow. Talk to you then. Guardian Unlimited.